Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. This is Roisin Ingle and I'm very, very sad today. So I'll keep this brief. I know a lot of you are very sad too. We just heard last evening about... Sinead O'Connor's death at 56 and it is something I think the whole country and a lot of the world is trying to process. She was a fond friend of this podcast. We were very lucky to speak to her at length a number of times and she was always just brilliant to speak to. She was a truly unique Irish woman. She changed things for this country. She showed us a different way that a woman could be She put two fingers up to the patriarchy. She exposed things that Irish society didn't want to look at. And I'm just so glad we got to tell her how grateful we were to her for that. And I mean, that's leaving aside all of the incredibly powerful, political in lots of ways, music that she gave us. And I think of songs like Black Boys on Mopeds, The Emperor's New Clothes. I think of Three Babies. Thank you for hearing me. I mean, I could just go on listing them because they were truly unique. She was an artist of unbelievable integrity. She never made her extraordinary beauty a bankable commodity. She just wasn't interested in any of that. And I'm really, really sad, as I said. But we just thought the only thing to do today would be to put out that interview we did with her in the summer of 2021 when she released her extraordinary memoir, rememberings she invited us to her home in Wicklow and anyway you'll hear all about it here I wish you all well and I think what we can just do is celebrate her life and remember her as the truly incredible Irish woman that she was Today is a very special extended episode, one we have been so looking forward to bringing you. So settle in, give yourself some space because it's going to be a long one and a very good one. It's Sinead O'Connor, everyone. She talked to us on the Women's Podcast about her new, incredibly beautiful and powerful book, Rememberings. Now, it's not the first time Sinead has been on the podcast, I'm very happy to say. And some of you will remember around this time last year, Sinead joined us from the shed of her home in Bray. We were very excited again recently to hear that Sinead wanted to invite us to her home to talk about her wonderful memoir, which is out very shortly, June 1st, and it's simply called Rememberings. You can only imagine how we felt to get the invite. There was fantastic excitement in Women's Podcast HQ. And the next thing we knew, we were being sent an advanced copy of the book, which arrived by courier. I read it in a day because it's that kind of book. It's one you don't want to put down. It's one you can't put down. And I know it won't come as any surprise to you that the book is, like the author, honest, surprising, original, funny, 
fiery and deeply moving. And if you're already a fan of her lyrics, it also won't surprise you that the writing is beautifully composed. And some of it reads to this fan anyway, like a sacred text. And some of it when she writes in the voice of the very young and very vulnerable child she used to be is heartbreakingly powerful. Now, we know that the wonderful author Joseph O'Connor is Sinead's brother. And if we needed confirmation, the book proves he is not the only remarkable writer in that family. I read Rememberings, reeling at the wisdom and the honesty and the courage and the humour because it's very funny in parts too. I liked it so much, I read it twice because it's that kind of book. Now, the invite to Sinead's house. Well, I don't drive, as some of you will know, so I asked my partner and my kids, could we go on a road trip to Sinead O'Connor's house? And really, how could they say no? So I packed them some takeaway dinner that they could eat for a picnic while I did the interview and we set off. It was one of those lovely, warm evenings, just as the country was starting to open up out of lockdown again and we drove down to her home in the County Wicklow countryside, passing trees that looked like artworks and fields that were almost a luminous shade of green. And the drive to Sinead's house was made all the more special because we hadn't been out of Dublin since January and we played Sinead O'Connor's songs loud in the car all the way there. Sinead was waiting for us in her conservatory with a giant mug of coffee, a full pack of fags and a sofa emblazoned with the image of a Hindu goddess. She was in great form, making us laugh straight away, which got rid of any shyness we felt at meeting someone myself and Jennifer Ryan, co-producer of the podcast, have admired for so long. She told us she'd been doing interviews and while writing about her childhood in a family that was falling apart and with a mother who was abusive, hadn't actually taken anything out of her at the time while writing it. It turned out that talking about all of that was stirring up old demons and long buried feelings of trauma and grief. So just to say we were very mindful of this as we spoke to her. She was wonderful, full of fun and stories and crack You all know Sinead has had her struggles and they've been very public. She's burnt a lot of bridges, some which will never be rebuilt. Fame and pop stardom were thrust upon her when she was barely out of her teens, but they were never her dream. The dream she had was different. It was to be a priest of music, a protest singer, she told me, a punk rocker. And her aspirations were always deeper and wider than the ones that some people might have of fame or money or notoriety. She is an artist and that's what we talked about a lot actually. She writes in the book that her spirit wasn't suited to the music business because it's unholy. And speaking of which, her spirituality sings from the pages of rememberings, including one part where a priest tells her as a child that he who sings prays twice. She writes that she made a contract with the Holy Spirit before she made one with the music business. She never signed anything that said she would be a good girl. I'm not a pop star, she writes. I'm just a troubled soul who needs to scream into mics now and again. She also writes that she never made any sense to anyone, even herself, unless she was singing. But oh, I'm telling you, Sinead O'Connor and her life and her motivations make so much sense in this book. 
We talk about her time in a reform school for girls with behavioural problems. That's the former Magdalen home in High Park, then called on Greenon when Sinead went there. We spoke about her early career and later her tearing up that Pope photo on SNL in 1992, which people said derailed her career, but which she says actually re-railed it. We spoke about her visit to Prince's house after she sang his song, Nothing Compares to You. And we spoke about her thoughts on the music industry, how it sexualizes young women and about her spirituality, her mental health struggles and the radical hysterectomy, which caused her so much ill health in more recent years. We spoke about her family and about so much more. Honestly, I could have stayed there all night. And it's a good job I didn't, though, because after we spoke, I actually asked her to come out to the car to say hello to my children. I knew they were going to be annoyed with me because I had stayed much longer with Sinead than I told them I would. And I hoped that seeing her and meeting her would appease them. And it's one of my it's one of my great joys in my life already and a memory I'm going to treasure that they sang Danny Boy to her outside her front garden. One of my daughters at each of her ears. And she said she really enjoyed hearing their harmonies in stereo. I really feel very lucky to have had this experience with a woman I admire so much and everyone on the women's podcast admires so much. And we're so glad to share it with you. So I think it's fair enough to say that, you know, I'm a fan and perhaps I was always going to love the book for that reason. But the reaction to the extract we published in the Irish Times last Saturday about her teenage years shows me that you do not need to be a Sinead O'Connor fan to appreciate the literary merit of this extraordinary memoir she has produced. So before we hear from Sinead herself, and it's a long interview, like I said, so settle in, I want to read you a couple of tweets that I loved seeing over the weekend. One was from one of our business journalists in the Irish Times, Mark Paul, who said, it's a long time since I've read anything as beautifully written as what Sinead O'Connor has done here. Not a single wasted word or ugly sentence. Stunning. And then another journalist from the Sunday Business Post, Barry White, tweeted, I'm struggling to think of a better piece of writing in an Irish newspaper in the last few years, fiction or non-fiction. And as you'll hear in the interview, Sinead actually did her work experience in the Irish Times, age 16, which I didn't know. And so you never know, she might get a gig with the paper out of all of this. We can only hope and I can only hope you buy this book and that you read it like I did, immersing yourselves in the words of a woman who rose, as she once wrote in Troy, like a phoenix from the flames of what was a really traumatic childhood to become such an incredible artist who continues to speak her truth, which is not what women in Ireland or indeed anywhere else in the world were raised to do. One more tiny thing. I have to bring you a tweet I saw from Helen O'Rahilly, which I think really sums it up. The way Sinead has been viewed here in Ireland and across the world in some quarters. Helen wrote, she is beautiful, yes, has always been, but she needs to be believed and needs a platform. That's far more important. She has been sidelined, belittled, laughed at. Now is her time. She writes beautifully, honestly. We need her voice beyond her song. Well, in her book and in this interview, you're going to hear the voice beyond the song. You'll hear the birds singing in the background too as she tells some of the stories of her life. I began by asking Sinead O'Connor about how the book came about and why it's happening now. Well, it's not, it wasn't my decision when to publish. It was the publishers because I signed the deal for it like five years ago. It's been five years in the making so the publisher was a bit like, you know what, could we, could we actually move this on a little, you know? 
So like I'd written the first half of it very quickly uh, from the beginning of 2015, from January through to August. At that point I had a radical hysterectomy and the rest is history. <laughs> and I only got my shit together four years later. So then I very quickly in the space of about three months wrote the second half. You know, actually there was a difference in the first half. There are two voices in the book consequently. In the first half I did actually type the things, you know, and tried to make it a bit like songs in some ways. The second half of the book I've dictated, because I was in St. Pat's, I fucking dictated it. I didn't want to sit there typing the thing. I could not, it was as if my heart was sitting on the keyboard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I was a bit blue, do you know? And um, so I, it was, I dictated all the stuff about the albums and all of that. So I, I've typed out up until the end of Saturday Night Live Oh, sorry, and the Bob Dylan show. And then the rest is dictated all about the record, so, yeah. And uh, But so the publisher was like, can we fucking... Yeah, can we get this book going mm. on? Uh, you have very... Oh, what's the story about swearing? Swearing is very welcome in the women's oh, podcast. Right. Very welcome. So please do not censor yourself, Sinead Connor. I wouldn't dare right. okay. ask you to do that. You have very clear motivations for wanting to write it as well, because, and I love it, you say, like, because otherwise someone else is going to do it. Someone else is going to tell the story yeah. and get it completely wrong. yeah. Um, I heard a great saying this week, somebody on CNN was saying, um, you know, they say a lie gets around the world quicker than the truth can get its pants on. Yes. You know? So that was, that's really, but it wasn't, I didn't actually initiate the project. What happened was I, in about 2014 on tour, I used to do a tour blog every night. So because I'm not a drinker, the lads abandoned the crew, they'd stay at the venue for a while. I would come straight off straight in, into a car and protect myself and go back to the hotel and have a spliff. And while I'm waiting then for the band to return so we can all get together, I would type out for an hour or so a little diary of the day, a blog. And what happened was a good friend of David Rosenthal, who's the American publisher, who's the guy, who, you know, whatever, uh, told him, oh, you got to look at Sinead's blog. And David had done Bob's book and he'd also done Neil Young and he'd also done Joni Mitchell and loads of music books. So he rang me having seen it. Uh, I used to have a section on my website too, which was letters to Bob Dylan. <laughs> and I'd write about like Aaron Jumpers and fucking, you know, real boring shit, you know. So David rang me and said, here, will you do a book, but do it like your tour diary in, in the form of blogs. And he told me to do it all in the present tense, which was extremely clever. Because that made me, you'd go back and smell things and see little tiny details and say all the shit you wish you said at the time, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it was a very good way of writing, just little blogs and snaps. That's why it's called Rememberings. It's just, it's not even chronological sometimes. It's just little snaps of, you know. And then he would, he as an editor then went in and sometimes changed the, the tense to past, you know. But he made me write it in the present. And very occasionally he'd go in and change it just to pass. But so so it was his idea. But, well, it was actually came from the person who rang David, who has to remain anonymous, but is, you know, a really incredible person. So it was a very good idea, whoever made that call. I hope so. <laughs> Definitely was. It's, it's an incredible book and I want to... I mean, I, I'm going to tell you how, how amazing it is, but I'll, I'll do that in the introduction, so I won't, I won't bore well, you there. I was just going to quickly say, you know, it's been for me is when I've read the audio book, I, I don't look at my songs or my writing after I've done them. 
So I didn't engage with it all until about three weeks ago. I had to do the audiobook. I haven't looked at it since 2019. I bullshitted the editor that I'd read everything. I just said, here, make sure I say nothing bad about anybody, you know, and that nobody can see me. But um, what I found then reading the audiobook and even being interviewed, people ask me questions is, oh, my God, what a fucking great adventure I'm after having. Do you know? Yeah. I'm so lucky. I was such a lucky person, like. Anyway. And we get to yeah. we get to live it with you as well. I mean, the thing is, it's so rich. And you set out your stall. I'm just going to read out the book. You say, I think you'll see in this book a girl who does find herself not by success in the music industry, but by taking the opportunity to sensibly and truly lose her marbles. The thing being that after losing them, one finds them and plays the game better. It's yeah. just a great line. Yeah, it's true. And have you having found your marbles? Yes, I have. Good. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad. I'm which I wouldn't have done without St. Pat's, which is why the book is dedicated to them, along with my father and David Rosenthal and Bob Dylan and Jeff Rosen. Um, but I wouldn't have found the marbles if not for Pat's. It takes a while to find them. They get, Each time you go in, they give you back one, you know. It takes a few years to get them complete, the complete bag, you know. And what prompted you going into Pats this time? The, the hysterectomy. It was six. I've been in and out of Pats for the last six years, and it was the hysterectomy. Yeah. So listen, you grew up in Glenageary. Yeah. And I love the stories about your grandparents. Yeah. Particularly, they're just really cute little vignettes. I have a grandfather who kept pigeons as well, so oh, I related yeah, yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, and they were, I love the, the fact that they were in Francis Street yes. and they moved to Crumlin and then you're, both of your parents met each other on the same, on the same street, street in Which Crumlin. my grandparents did too in Francis Street. Exactly. Yes. It's, a, it's a really yeah. interesting um, yeah. you know, thing. But you had a complicated childhood. And it was an interesting Lots. road called Keeper Road. But yeah, Keeper what a great a, name. Keeper is a, a, a name for the Holy Spirit in some traditions, you know, so I quite like that. I was going to say then you had a quite a complicated upbringing because you were yeah. between two families and so your parents split up and you had, yeah, I, I mean, you're really honest in this book as you have been in your whole life because I wouldn't expect anything else. You talk about stuff like shoplifting as a kid, yeah. you know, which I think a lot of us have done, but none of us put it in a yeah, book and yeah. write about it. Yeah. And I think it, maybe it was a particular thing in Dublin in, at that time. There was a lot of thieving well, going was, on. We were broke. The, the country was broke. That's why everybody was leaving. But the reason that I was the, the thief too was uh, myself and my best mate at the time, a girl called Kira O'Flanagan who then became my personal assistant during the glory years, as I call them. Um, <laughs> We could run 100 metres in 11.3 seconds. We, my father used to be a sprinter. We were fucking killer sprinters. So, But Kira would have been too nervous to steal. But the kids in the class, the teenagers, get me to steal the clothes to go to gigs because I would just put them on the shop and run, do you know? Or put the shoes on and run or whatever, you know? So, yeah, it, it was partly that. It was like nobody had any money to go to gigs or wear something nice or, you know, get get off with the guy, do you know? yeah. And you were just, you were just, uh, I suppose, it, you ended up in that place in High Park because of all of that, because yeah. you were, your, your father didn't know how to control you and yeah. didn't know what to do with you, essentially. Yeah, well, it, what I would say is, you know, I, what happened was finally my mate Fiona Smith, she won't mind me naming <laughs> her because she's a brat like me, <laughs> you know, um, she asked me to steal her a pair of gold shoes because we were all going to the Pretenders. And Chrissy Hind to me, was an amazing figure because up until Chrissy Hind in Ireland, the only role models you had as the type of woman you could be was images of the Virgin Mary, 
the Immaculate Conception, do you know what I mean? Cindy, the doll, which is the equivalent of Barbie, do you know, Cindy with the different outfits, but there was nothing I could identify with, and suddenly fucking Joan Jett and then Chrissy Hine come along in the leather, you know, and not, not trying, just being a person, do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Just the leather gear and the way she, her whole attitude, you know, changed my fucking life, actually. So anyway, Fiona wants the shoes to go to the pretenders, and I'll tell you that this story is going to blow your mind, right, what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> I, brought, I steal the gold shoes out of the British home stores. Do you remember BHS? Yeah. yeah. Was that on O'Connell Street there, was it? It was, yeah. and then when you turned left down the little road, <laughs> yeah, the lane. There, there was then a little alleyway, do you remember? Yeah, it the it's still street. there. It's like the alleyway behind GPO, isn't it? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, wherever that is, what happened GPO was, Arcade. this time I didn't run, I got too cocky. So I walked away with the shoes. And in the midst of that lane, I felt a hand on my shoulder. Excuse me, miss, you know. That hand on my shoulder was the beginning of my career because it sent me to on Greenon, right? And I wake like I said, this is the part that's going to blow your mind. Years later, I think nothing of it, and I've met Chrissy a few times, and that's grand. And what happens is Paul McCartney's wife dies. And Paul puts on a gig at the Royal Albert Hall in honour of Linda. the wife. Yeah. And we're all, like, I've got, you know, we're all real posh dressed up and I ordered a beautiful dress months before, a red strapless dress. I forgot my shoes. And I never thought about this until about two years later. I used to put shoes on a mantelpiece like works of art. They look beautiful sometimes, you know. Mm. Anyway, I never thought thing about it. She lent me her shoes for, for the gig, right? Chrissy Hine. Chrissy Hine gives me the shoes. And then at the end of the gig, she says, oh, you can keep them. So I bring them home. I'm in the apartment <laughs> in Bride Street. By the time I noticed this, it's a couple of years after I left London. Um, and I have them in my windowsill just because they're pretty. And then I'm looking at them and going, holy shit. Oh, my God. I got locked up over stealing a pair of gold shoes to go see that fucker. <laughs> and now she's given me the gold. It's like It was like God saying, sorry, and actually, do you know what, Sinead? It, it was all for a good purpose, do you know? God. Isn't it mental? And I love that image of that hand on your shoulder starting everything. That was the start of the career, yeah, totally. And off you went to High Park. Oh, which... uh, yeah, not straight away that day. What happened was but they, the, they, the, cops, yeah. the cops got, you know, Tusla involved and uh, a, a social worker was employed, a horrible woman, fucking hated her. And uh, she recommended to my father and my stepmother that I should go to this place. And my father and my stepmother, who's adorable, trusted these people, mm. you know, with the best of intention. They they believed that it was called a rehabilitation centre for girls with behavioural problems. And as I'm saying in the book, you know, my dad needs a refund. But the, the state paid them for us. And sometimes our parents also did, you know, the state would try to get away with it if they could. So my father, believing that the word rehabilitation sent me there, so it wasn't that he was being an asshole. In fact, he was being the opposite, you know. He really wanted me to go on the right path. He was afraid I would choose the path that my mother had set out for me and I would end up in jail, you know. So, yeah, in that alleyway, I don't know where, what you'd name the street or the alleyway, but in the alleyway, whatever man put his hand on my shoulder, that was the beginning of the Because career. tell us about Hyde Park and Angry and On and the fact that, like, that's where the Mountain and Laundry was. And there's a line in the book where you say, I'd heard that there was a, a graveyard with, and all the women were called Magdalene. Yeah. And you were saying, why were they all called the same name? And I suppose mm. at that time, 
It's long before we knew all about uh, what people were yeah, subjected to there. Yeah. But that was essentially the place. So there was older that, women that lived there. That, in fact, was the place that gives the name Magdalene Laundries to right. all other places. So what happened is that um, after I left there, a couple of years later, they sold the land. The church sold the land. Mm. And whichever builders came along to do it every day, they built apartments there or something, they dug up the land and they found these graves marked Magdalene. And consequently, then all the other places that was found, you know, that's what gives the name Magdalene Laundries. Okay. So when I went there, what happens is quite a big building, two two buildings and a big church, a big tall old building, maybe five floors. We're on like the second floor. These old ladies are on the upstairs floor. They're very ancient, and you see them every day, shuffling around the huge square of the of the building in a row, like ducks with a nun behind them, and they'd be bent over, kind of with their hands on their wombs and shuffling in slippers, always looking down, never looking left or right, um, looking like guilty, like they'd done something wrong, mm. you know, in their night clothes a lot of the time, you know, mm. even in the day. There would be a, a basketball court kind of thing between us and them, they were never allowed to engage with us. We were never allowed to engage with them. In fact, nobody ever even talked about them or mentioned mm. their existence, which is why I feel so strongly that, you know, the only counselling I needed from them in the redress situation was around the issue of these ladies, actually. You know, and I roared fucking crying. It's the only thing. And then I said, Grand, thanks, I'm gone now. So basically, these were the ladies who went in there as young women, as Magdalene women, and had their babies taken off them or mm. because they were sexually abused and complained and nobody believed mm. them. I've met people there yeah. for that reason. Um, they had stayed there their whole life and then there was this kind of secret hospice where they were put to die and there was no one attending. You know, at night they were alone. Um, and it was really quite tragic, the hospice place. Like, there were no fucking staff, no staff. These ladies are calling out all night, nurse, nurse, and nobody's coming, you know. So they weren't allowed to look at us, never mind talk to us, and we weren't allowed to talk to them. Of course, I stared at them a lot. I felt so sorry for the way they were walking. As I say, hands on their womb, all bent over like they did something fucking wrong. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're like, like I said in the book, like slaves on the way to auction, you know. And... Um, it transpires that these are the women who were going into graves marked Magdalene, you know. And I actually consider myself terribly, terribly lucky that God put me there, you know. Because otherwise those women, we would never have heard about them. We'd never, you know, I, I don't know anybody else in the, in the world of art or celebrity in Ireland who has ever met these women. Mm -hmm. Everybody talks, of course, we all talk about them. But actually, I fucking met them at their dying moment and saw them every day, like the way they were treated. Fucking nuns walking behind them like they were bold little three-year-olds. Humiliated they were. The body position they were in was humiliation. And you know? Sinead, as a young... You were only, what, you were 14? I was 14 at that time. Like I stayed there for about two years. And the I mean, guts of two years. And then one of the, one of the nuns actually... You talk about this sort of unofficial sort of hospice up at the top mm. and you were sort of sent up there for, yeah, for a night to yeah. kind of... Tell us about that experience because yeah. that's how you saw it so at so such close quarters. Yeah, well, I saw the ladies all the time shuffling yeah. around the building and the kind of poet in me wondered what a very interesting vision because it's like a row of ducks but the mother is at the wrong end, hmm. the, the nun, do you mm. know? So it was all fucking 
a bit discombobulating. But I was always very curious about them. I, I loved my granny so much, and my granny used to drill into me how to that one must really respect old people, you know? So that's why I was fascinated with them, you know, what the fuck, like. Um, so what happened was I used to run away out of the place all the time. It was locked and there was bars on the windows. You could, you weren't allowed out. You just weren't allowed out. Unless you s- s- talked your way into school, which I did, which I talk about in the book. Anyway, I used to fuck off all the time with my guitar and I would go busking. And in those days, you might remember all the time in hotels, they'd have talent contests. And if you sang Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, you'd fucking win the, the fiver. Well, if you was. sang it, if you sang it, Sinead, of Well, one time Tim Rice <laughs> wrote to me and told me that my version was the best version he ever heard. See? It was pretty cool. I had a lot of practice. So anyway, that's what I would do. I'd go around the hotels and I'd busk up in the Haypenny Bridge, make myself a bit of money and go home again. And I learned there at the Haypenny Bridge how, what's very important about singing is intention. It's not about the words. If When you're busking, your intention is to make people stop. Yeah? So that stayed with me very much, that the intention of, like, the first sound that comes out of my mouth is going to make you stand fucking still. Do you know uh-huh. what I mean? So that was a good good lesson. But then I'd have to troop back to on Green On, and, and usually the, the nun was real nice to me and everything, but this particular time I, she got fed up once too often and... You know, I suppose they're they getting an awful lot of shit if anything happens to you under mm. their watch. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So she finally, what she did one night, she never said a word to me. She said, I want you to go upstairs to such and such a room on such and such a floor and that's where you're going to stay the night. And um, I go in the room and I, as I described in the book, there's this little ward, there's maybe five women on each side. Curtains are drawn, these kind of cream-coloured curtains. Everything's all nice, mm. buttermilk, quite very clean, sterile, old skirting boards. Very old building, you know, churchy building, you know. And um, there's no, nobody comes to me, no staff, no mm. nothing. And I just begin to deduce that I'm supposed to get into one of these beds, you know. And all during the night, the old ladies are calling out, you know, and it's a bit weird. And I'm ac- I've actually peeked in at some of them, you know, and they're, mm. they're proper dying, skinny, skeletal women, you know who previously would have been the plump women yeah. wandering around, you know. And, um, yeah, so I stayed the night there and it took me a couple of days to figure out what the fuck is this about, you know. And then I figured, oh, my God, she's letting me know what will be my fate if I don't toe the line. And and when you were there, you were in cubicles and there was, it was a really uh, moving story of the young woman in the next cubicle to you. Yeah, her name was Anne. She died last year, so we, like, we could name her, which I think she deserves, yeah. Tell me about Anne. Well, do you know what I don't like? Is I don't remember who was the Taoiseach at the time. I think it was Edna Kelly, as they called him in America. Um, he dared to get on telly. If it was him, I'm not sure. Forgive me if it's not. But after they did the, the Magdalene Laundry report type of thing, he went on telly and he dared to say that no Magdalene woman ever had a baby while in a Magdalene Laundry. I was throwing shit out the telly because Anne's had a baby. She was 17, and when you got to 17, they sent you out on, um, got you a little job, usually in a typing fucking pool, you know, something like that, secretarial work. And she went and had a little affair with some dude from Glenageary. So she got pregnant, and obviously the nuns were probably cross, I don't know, but then, but she was delighted. And we all stayed there with her during the pregnancy. She was the most lovely fucking woman you could ever meet. I hope I've described her well. In the yeah, book. Audrey Hepburn. And, um, except 
with dark yeah. skin. And uh, she had the baby, and then she came back to the place with the little baby, who I remember he looked like Krishna. He was so white, he was blue, you know. Black, black hair on him, and then blue skin nearly. He looked, you know, the way you see the depiction of the mm. Hindu. And she fucking adored that baby, and so did we, and she just looked after him so well. She was mad about him. And one morning, we woke up, we heard her screaming. There was two nuns literally pulling the baby out of her arms. I don't know or remember, did she know that he was going? The law was still at that time that you couldn't keep your baby if you weren't married and you were under 18. I know about five women that this happened to. Mm. You know, one woman that I know got in the shower, came back, the baby was gone, you know. So I don't know if Anne knew that the baby or had she agreed to an adoption, but one way or the other, she was hysterical. And, I mean, she, although her body stayed she went with him she she vacated her body she just wasn't there anymore you know and she had a terribly difficult life really a lonely and painful life you know she never ever 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 got over it you know she did find him though that's the beauty part of it about 30 years later she found him and they began to have a relationship you know and that was very nice for her but you know then she died last year and uh I'm amazed she'd lasted that long, to be honest, you know. Yeah. So when Enda Kelly stood there saying, fucking nobody had a baby, I'm like, bitch, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You know, you know when you say in the book that um, the day you left Ireland at 18 was the best day of your life, and yeah. then you say, and every other time I left Ireland was the best day of my life. Mm. <laughs> like, you don't hold back. Mm. I mean, I think of you sort of, you know, we, your childhood was difficult, it was challenging. Mm. You mentioned your mum, and it was hard. Um and you write very movingly about that in the book. And you found music or music found you or music seems to be, yeah, the hand on the shoulder and the golden shoes. And that was, I mean, it's a bit trite to say music saved you, but music was. Oh, totally, totally. Like the, I was in, I was sent to that place because I was a fucking kleptomaniac. I was a thief. I was going to end up in jail, you know. And they, the, the what happened was the nun in there, somehow deduced that I was so interested in music or moved by music that perhaps that would be the thing to stop me being a thief. The object of her game was stop this bitch from stealing. We don't want her going to jail. She won't go to fucking school. She doesn't give a shit about maths or fucking geography. And she keeps running away, so we need to make her interested in sticking around. So that's why she, the nun bought the guitar and the, the, the book of Bob Dylan lyrics with the with the chords drawn above it so you knew where to put your fingers on the guitar and so then I learned how to play to Ramon I was straight out the fucking door <laughs> and I'm still a shit guitar player consequently <laughs> you know but yeah no she was clever the nun she loved me like she really did love me she was lovely and um somehow I didn't even see it in me I hadn't realized yet that I might be a musician although when I was young I did have a when I was very small I had a bit of an idea but mm. but she somehow saw it and realized okay the only way we're going to stop this fucker ending up in Mount Joy is get her a guitar and some music. And, Clever and woman. It, it, it worked, you know. Because so. you went off to boarding school and then you were singing with Tom Tom McCoot and mm. they heard you in London yeah. and they were looking for the next big thing because you two were kind of on the way and that was it. You were you were out of there. There's a, there's yeah. a line, we talked about your mother, you, you say, I couldn't admit I was angry with my mother so I took it out on the world and burnt nearly every bridge I ever crossed. I just thought that right. was an amazing 
line right. because it sort of sums up a lot of what yeah. a lot of people wouldn't know was driving you all the time oh, that yeah. anger yeah know? yeah of course yeah yeah so tell me a bit about that anger and where it came from what it comes from is um when a child you know and we're talking from the age of zero when a child is physically subsumed by a parent either in the form of sexual abuse or battering um they're not allowed to stand up for themselves. You know, like if I put my hands up to protect myself, my mother would hit me more, accuse me of assaulting her, do you know? And what happens is the child has to go to a certain place in their mind so as not to feel what's happening, do you know? But what's actually happening is the adult hasn't totally invaded the, the body, soul, mind and spirit of this human being. And that human being either hasn't the means to stand up for him or herself or is too afraid to or the violence will get worse if they do. So that's why you often see, even in movies depicted when when a girl is being either raped by a stranger or a parent, there is a point at which she starts staring at the ceiling, just switches off and lets it happen, you know? And what happens then is you've suppressed the anger. Um, and what happens then, uh, my mother died, I didn't get to punch her in the fucking face. Do you know what I mean? And that would have been an important step the day that you actually stood there. A lot of people say it about sons and fathers. One day the son gets up and punches the fucking dad. There's an old saying in in pagan times, which we were in once, what of the king's stag when the young stag has grown? And how it was in those days, in the pagan times, you became a man the day you punched your father out. <laughs> and what happened is I didn't get to do that. Your mother died. died in a car crash. Yeah. Very suddenly, very shocking. Yeah, so I didn't get to do that. And then what happened is um, also in Ireland, certainly at that time, a woman wasn't allowed to be angry. You couldn't fucking be angry. Anger was like a bad thing, you know. Men could box the shit out of each other, but, you know, we had to be really nice and sweet. And um, so I think I buried it. And I was also very angry at God for killing her because I didn't get to kill her. Um yeah, so what happens is, with all of us, because we have had to survive the abuse by squishing our true feelings, happens that when you're, you're... It's basically like a rescue dog. That's the way I would describe myself. I'm like a rescue dog. If you put me in a situation that even slightly smells of anything that happened, I'm going to get triggered. Not always to anger, sometimes to nice things, even sometimes to grief or sometimes a bit of sorrow or whatever. But if I found if myself... I have a thing called the I am nothing button. You know, yeah. one of the things that's talked about in the book is that one of my mother sometimes when, quite often when she'd be battering the shit out of me on the floor, she would make me say over and over, I am nothing. So I have this thing called the I am nothing button. If somebody presses that button, I just lose my motherfucking shit. That's when I'd be angry. If I feel um, I've been humiliated, I don't mm -hmm. do humiliation, you know. And... Uh, I've other little triggers. There are other triggers too, but I I have a complex post traumatic stress disorder, so I'm a rescue dog basically. So yeah, certain situations now I I, I bully the bully because I didn't get to bully the bully. So in my life, I've been a person who, when I feel bullied and I correct that I'm being bullied, I would absolutely become the biggest gangster bitch and rain down 
hell on people, do you know? That reminds me of a really, there's such a beautiful uh, piece in the book about your sister, Emer, who you mm. obviously adore and mm. who adores you. Mm. And you say, she loves me. I don't know why, but she does. How she is different from me is that she has red hair and self-esteem and I don't have either. <laughs> yeah. She has no mental illness. She has never been a pain in the arse. She isn't difficult or too emotional like I am. She isn't vengeful like me. She's no mean streak. She can walk away from abuse without being abusive. I wish I was like her in those ways. Yeah. Lord knows I'm working on it. Yeah, no, but I i can't. It's just me. I've learned to accept the darker sides of myself, but invite them in to tea and make friends with them, as they say, you know, in therapy. And um, I just accept what I am, do you know? So I'm definitely a bit of a gangster in certain situations. <laughs> yeah. I don't like, I, I have one quite vulnerable child, you know, Anybody fucks with that kid, I would drive my motherfucking car through their front door, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and certain things, yeah, I don't like to see my children being bullied. I've been in situations where I see my children get bullied and then I go gangster on, on whoever it is. And then I feel fucking awful for months, do you know? But that, anything to do with the kids being bullied or if I feel I'm being bullied, like sometimes in a situation, a certain man might, uh, what's the call it, stepping up. You know, yeah. in your face, kind of, you know, that, then uh, flip. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So tell me about escaping from Ireland. And, like, you know, when you describe the, the uh, on Greenon and what happened with your mother and just a general sort of chaotic sort of childhood and a, yeah. a lost childhood to, to, to some degree. Um, yeah, but in the music business, the great thing about it is you get a child, you're to permanent child. <laughs> the whole thing about musicians is, is they, they don't grow up. It's brilliant. So, And I knew that at the time. As soon as I hit 20, I was like, fucking great, I'm having a childhood now, you know? We have to talk about when you shaved your head because there's mm. so many funny things in the book, right? And that you're in your record studio and they're telling you they want you to wear short skirts and boots and necklaces and bracelets and you're just looking at them going, why, why do I have to do that? Yeah. And then you went to your manager, fuck now, fuck the time, who had actually said to you, whatever you do, should I be yourself in the music yeah, industry, which was very yeah, good yeah, advice. Yeah, yeah. And he said to you, I think you should shave your head. He said, I think you should shave your fucking head. <laughs> Yeah. So tell us about the Greek guy that you went and got your head shaved from. Well, I was, it, was, uh, it was around Westbourne Grove. I, I, I was hanging around there. I didn't live there. I actually lived fucking miles away in South London in Lewisham at the time. But I would go now and then to see the record company because I didn't know anybody else apart from Demon Faulkner. And we would often go to, and the first time I ever tasted Indian food was in this place called Cannes on Westbourne Grove. And that's where they would have their meetings in the daytime because the food was so good. So they took me down to Cannes this one day and I had, at that time, a sort of Mohican, you know? And the, yeah, I think it was close to the album or something like that. And, or maybe it wasn't. And uh, Nigel Grange, who's also dead, so we can talk about him. The publisher, that's the first thing he said to me, is that before we legaled it, who's dead? <laughs> I didn't know that about books. And uh, so, yeah, no, he just sits me down. He says, you know, he'd like me to short wear short skirts and maybe some high heels and grow my hair long and you know and uh, he had a couple of mistresses you know basically what he was describing in my head I was seeing his mistress the woman he just dumped his wife for you know so I said that to Chris and then I I didn't really say much I just fucked off and then I just happened to tell Faulkner and he just said yeah you know fucking shave it so then I went I he must have been at the dinner or something because I went straight across the road to the barber, the Greek barber in Westbrook Grove. 
And he's a young fella, and the shop is completely empty. There's all these big red chairs, and it was at the time when the times when you know the old phone would be on the wall, you know. And um, I say, you know, I want to look like a boy. I'm trying to describe it. I want him to sh take it all off, you know. And um, he's obviously he's real nervous about the shop, as if he's not used to being in charge, yeah. you know. So he rings his father, who's obviously the real boss of the shop, to ask the father, is it okay if he does this, you know? But then he's literally beseeching me, walking across the room, begging me, please don't do this, you know. <laughs> And uh, what will your father say? Yeah, what yeah, will your like, say? <laughs> yeah. So um, finally, he did do it once. Once he had established that there wasn't any male relative or boyfriend or anyone who was going to come round and beat him up. And uh, when he when it was done, I was delighted. But this one, it was like that. Nothing compares to you. Video. One little tear came down his face. You know, <laughs> he was really he was so upset. Yeah. And you went to the record company and uh, yeah, well, say they were raging. to the record company, you know. Well, the, the Doreen, who was their secretary, this lovely old lady, she was fucking thrilled. Like, And Chris Hill was a very mischievous character, so even though he didn't necessarily like it, he saw the laugh. He, he, he liked when people were taking the piss out of Nigel, because Nigel was a bit of an asshole, to be honest, you know. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so he got kind of mischievous about it. But, no, I don't think Nigel liked this, but I didn't really fucking care. Like, you know? But tell me about that time, because there you were. It's OK for me to say how, what a beautiful young woman you were. Come over from Ireland, such a voice, such a talent. They wanted to mould you into something. They had a very clear idea of what Sinead O'Connor, the artist, was going yeah, to be. Yeah. And you, from the very first minute, were having none of it. No. I am fascinated by this, Sinead. And yeah. is it to do with everything you'd seen in Ireland and everything you'd been through? Because a lot of young women in your situation at that time would have gone, do whatever you want, I will I will obey every rule that you say and I make yeah, me famous. Yeah. Well, no, see, where I was lucky was that I had Faulkner Kelly as a manager because he was a proper fucking punk, you know, and they weren't taking any shit, the rats or him and that, you know. And, um, so he, from the word go, was, you just do what the fuck you like do exactly what the fuck you like and he was very encouraging he was like fuck them fuck them all he hated everybody that's the way he was like he that just handy hated record company people he fucking would eat them up like he hated them you know and uh because he, he knew what they were all up to you know forty thousand dollar a year fucking expense accounts and i was getting paid five grand a year you know what i mean yeah. and uh, so it was because of him he was the one saying you know you can you can be yourself i was saying i don't like the sound of the record so what was happening was at that time clanad had were huge and i love clanad so it's no offense to them but um and i didn't want to sound like them but because it was a bit racist it was because i was irish they were trying to make me real ethereal right you know and uh yeah, make it a bit like Clannad, you know, but that didn't suit the song. Like, you can't do that to a song like Troy, you know, like it's a real rage in fucking songs, you know, and you can't really do that. So I, I, I just was sick listening to the stuff all along, you know. It took me a while to say I don't like it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was I was pregnant with my son, Jake. I felt guilty. If I didn't want to say to Nigel, look, I hate this, you know, because they do that. They make you feel like you're you're the lucky one, you know. <laughs> And uh, so I never said anything. Then what happened was, uh, oh, yeah, then I had a few chats and Nigel was telling me to go fuck myself. We spent 100,000 quid, blah, blah, blah. Faulkner explains to me that actually that's my 100,000 quid because I'm going to be recouping or they're going to be recouping it. And then I still feel Catholic about it. Mm. You know, I, I won't do anything about it. And what happens then is um, I get pregnant with my son, Jake, 
in those days, record companies had doctors of their own, which obviously could get a big drug under the sun from. And this guy's dead too, so we can say great. it. Great. Sorry, not that he's dead, is, but you know, great a, that you can say He was an American doctor. And I, what happened, I told Nigel I was pregnant. Nigel, like a two-faced fuck, goes, oh, yeah, cool. Well, look, I'll send you to the uh, record company doctor and you get your first checkup or whatever. So as soon as I walk in the room, this little fucking frog-looking man says to me, you know, your record company have spent $100,000 recording your record. You owe it to them not to have this baby. And then he proceeded to try to convince me that if I went on tour or travel or flow, you know, that my baby would be somehow disabled, you know. And interestingly, at the same time, Carl Wallinger was putting out his first record and he was having his first baby. And no fucker was saying to him that he owed it to the record company not to have the baby. So after that chat with the doctor, I realised that, you know what, Nigel Gray is a complete and utter fucking cunt and I don't have to consider his feelings whatsoever about anything. Yeah. And that's when I said to fuck, OK, here, I hate this fucking record. And he's like, you can produce it yourself. You can totally have the baby oh, and God. produce it yourself, yeah. you know. I mean, that's mad because you're only 20, 21 when you uh, had Jake. 20. And you're about to So I'm pregnant the whole album. time. I'm making my yeah, first record. I'm pregnant with Jake, yeah. And then you're suddenly catapulted into this orbit. I mean, yeah. I know Nothing Compares to You was really the stratospheric, but even before the first album yeah. was huge. It was yeah. huge. And I know you're, you're saying Fakna helped you with that, okay? But I still think you obviously had some fire in you, Sinead, at the time that was just not going to play the ball. Like, you talk about shaving your head to be like a boy. Well, I wasn't musically going to play the ball. Like, Faulkner never said anything to me about, you know, I I, I had musical confidence, yeah. vocal confidence, yeah. and confidence in my words and how the fuck mm. I was making the sounds. And so Faulkner never interfered with that as such, and he yeah. was not interfering anyway. But in those days, you know, women didn't play electric guitars, mm. women didn't touch studio equipment, it was all men that operated it. There was no culture of women learning. You Now you see women lighting guys and you see women studio engineers mm. and whatever, but in those days it was all guys. And I still don't know how to use the machines. Like, I, I just told the engineer what I wanted. But no, I had total confidence in what I was doing vocally, mm. which really all I was doing, I wasn't even thinking about make, what, whether the album was coming out or what was going to happen. I would just have had shit to get off my chest. Mm. So I had a great time catharting. <laughs> catharting, you know, I love it. Did you know the, when, the likes shit. of Troy, for example, did you know that was an extraordinary thing you were making at the time? No, I didn't, no. Because it's, I mean, it's, it's just one of the most extraordinary songs ever written. Well, that, that was the first single, which is really interesting. We, we blew up the Hellfire Club with a whole lot of napalm. We just came into the Dublin Airport with a fuck ton of napalm. <laughs> uh, and we blew, blew the place up about four or five times to make the video, but somehow managed not to damage it because we brought this army dude with us. Yeah. You know. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Sinead, you know the way you're saying you had the confidence vocally and with the music. But, yeah, I had the know, confidence with the songs and the style and how. But then I, you had to you know, go on the media yeah, you know, yeah, thing. And, yeah. you, and you say that every time you opened your mouth, you, you got into trouble. Yeah. Like, what I'm really interested in is that absolute, and I think that's something that is consistent with you all the way through, and it comes through every bit of the book, is this absolute inability not to say things as you see them mm. and say your feelings, mm. which again at the time was very ahead of its time and unusual because especially as a young woman, you know, mm. we were told, you know, don't say the things, keep quiet, yeah. have shame. And you did have the shame and you had all that. So how come? No, I didn't. I never had shame. Okay. Singers don't do shame. We don't do embarrassment or shame. The reason being, we go into a studio in a black room by ourselves. There's a window like there is in the police shows, you know, like the, and there's a whole lot of people in there and we're fucking mortified and we sound like cats getting dragged through a bush until we get it right. It's like an orchestra tuning up. We have to make a fucking fool of ourselves in front of everybody, even Barbara Streisand, you know, until it sounds nice. So we don't do shame and embarrassment. The other thing about singers is we're no different off stage than on. A singer's job is to be emotionally honest. That's our job. You've got to you know, not hide anything. That's the, all the greatest singers you can think of are people who, you know, they, they became the song physically, do you know? Yeah. And so the whole thing of singers is that they're, they're completely emotionally open, you know, emotionally present, do you know? Yeah, they, but you even see Their job is emotional honesty. But, you know, do you see artists you know? now, and especially women, who you see are very clearly are manipulated into being yeah. things that record companies want them to yeah. be. Oh, I see what you're getting at, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And I just think... I mean, you probably don't see it because well, you do, couldn't have I seen do. any other option. There was well, no other I do, option for I do you. have to say that apart from the music, which I was very confident with, what gave me the confidence was Faulkner. Constantly in my ear about, you do what the fuck you like. Now, we didn't always get on well, me and Faulkner, whatever, you know, and I was a bit more like him sometimes than, than I was like me. But uh, as a young person, it was great to have a punky kind of father figure saying, you know what, fuck the lot of them. Just be yourself. You also you know? had your best friend, John Reynolds, the father of Jake, yeah. who, who was but a John would never tell you what life. to do or say or anything, do you know? But, but um, yeah, me and John are still best mates. Like I love the way you know? say that you've had this dance through life and you yeah. always will have that dance. Yeah, it's a exactly. gorgeous way it's, to describe it's, the it's friendship. It's in recorded history for Jake. It's a great legacy we have for Jake, do you know, that, that all the music his mother and father made together, you know. But tell me more about the music industry as you saw it then as, and um, as it evolved, because you talk about men in the music industry being afraid of music. Oh, yeah. And being That's just... why John Lennon is dead, you know. Tell me what you saw and what you quickly copped on to very early on about the industry you were entering into. OK, well, the first thing I copped on was the moment that John Lennon is shot, music becomes fake. For 10 years, you have nothing but synthesizers, keyboards... Duran Duran, Rick, Rick fucking Hay, Nick Hayward, songs about girls, all about how you look. If you're focused on looking, you're not listening. You can't do the two at the same time at a gig. Try it out next time you go to a gig. When there's a huge display and a show going on, you're looking at that and you're not actually getting moved emotionally by the words or the performance, do you know? 
So John Lennon dies, there's a decade where music becomes fake and no one's writing songs about anything. Bob Dylan even goes into his room for five fucking days, comes out a different artist, never again writes a song that might be, you know, anti-war or fucking with anyone that might kill him, you know. People become afraid of music, you know. Um, the first thing when you asked me about the industry, the first image that flashed into my head was there was a record company executive who I better not name at my company who, this was the way it was in those days, like, but this record company dude had um, an office with a glass wall and a door in the middle of it. He was interviewing potential secretaries. He sexually assaulted one woman who came for the interview. She was so frightened that she ran through the glass door. She didn't see the door, she ran through the window, ended up in hospital in shreds. And he got off in court uh, because on the grounds that he was so coked up he didn't know what he was doing. That's Jesus. the way it was. You know, Faulkner one time went in to have a meeting. They used to have what you call the international department. They'd be the one dealing with outside of Ireland or England or whatever. He, uh, they, the, the, the meeting was late. Faulkner sitting in the company. Half an hour later, the guy comes out and goes, you know what, we can't do the meeting. We've taken too much coke. You know? So the guys were always trying to fuck you. And they were always on drugs, basically. But they didn't ever offer us any drugs, which was a bit mean of them. You know? But these were weird times to... Music and race had a you know, relationship, and music became scary for the industry in terms of that. Um, NWA come along, they're, they're like the Beatles, nearly. You know, they changed the face of the planet. All the white kids are screaming, fuck the police, you know? And... Um, what I want to tell you is, in America, when you would walk into the record company building, they had different floors. And in the basement, everybody was real black, dark-skinned, and they were all listening to hip-hop, hardcore, you know. And that was the mail room. E each floor, as you went up, the people got paler and paler, and the music got whiter and whiter, you know what I'm saying? And then, of course, there'd be no women at the, on the top three tiers, you know, the women were only secretaries. There was, at that time, no such motherfucking thing as the woman boss of a record company. There just wasn't, it never happened, you know. So what was interesting though, to me racially, was that image. The black guys were down in the basement doing the shittiest job, you know. And then as your skin got a bit paler, you got a better, a high class job, you know. And, and it was interesting that the music changed on each floor as well, you know. So it was a real, um, I believe the industry is frightening the music. That's why they have been engaged in the business for the last 15 years of silencing and grooming, you know, potential songwriters by having the artists sexualize themselves on stage on all fours with a load of dollars in your mouth, just simulating sex with an older guy when you look like a kid, your audience are children, mm. you're inviting them to simulate masturbation. There's something very sinister going on. And then there's this worship of fame which comes along with pop idol and all of this shit. So that now people just want to be famous, they don't say I want to be a singer, you know. Mm. And the only way you get successful, in inverted commas, is by getting on all fours and putting some dollars in your mouth and mm. singing a song about shagging. And then know? there's people today so who say that's whole, empowering and whole, women should yeah, be able to... That's, uh, that's what I say the business has done. What's changed hugely in the business, they have managed to completely, a mostly male industry, completely pervert the idea of female liberation. And they've done it by using females who they groomed, you know. And they're not only that, but more sinister, they are sexualizing children. 
these artists who look like children or who grew up and had child audience, they're half their audience are still children, they're sexualizing them yeah. and giving them the idea that they're, the little girls are getting the idea that all they're worth is sex and how they look, you know? And that the same applies then to songwriting, that the little girls won't grow up and write songs like me, mm. you know? That's why they had to come after me. This, in this, I'm in the same category as the rappers for a different reason. They're telling a hard truth, but I am also exhibiting being oneself, and they don't want the girls to be themselves. Nobody wants female anger, you know? Nobody mm. wants females running the world. Happy people don't spend money. The, the, the prince of this earth is the devil, and the who runs this earth is the devil in the form of money, mm. you know? And uh, they want the women silenced. So artists like Miley and all of these people that look like Donald Duck go on stage with no pants on, all of them leotards, you know, J-Lo, Madonna, with their pussies in the fucking camera, like, they are sometimes wittingly and sometimes unwittingly grooming their audiences. Mm -hmm. Some of them know they're doing it. Some of them don't know they're doing it. And how the ones that don't know is get, get used. It's the worst flaw any fucking musician can have is vanity. So, for example, the day that Oasis set foot in Downing Street, they lost their power. When you two start engaged with George Bush, they're not rock and roll anymore. Rock and roll was supposed to challenge the establishment, right? Instead, these people began to make it part of the establishment. Mm. They were groomed because they were vain. Oh, yeah, you feel so important because Tony Blair wants to see me. Oh, I'm, I matter. That's vanity. And why did you not have that, Sinead? Like, you could have gone down that road, right? Mm. You could have made... You could have, I mean, you had as much success. You had an amazing success. You've had an incredible career. Mm. But you could have gone down a different road and had loads more money, mm. loads more of all that stuff. But you just didn't want it. Well, I always say, I grew up and so did you in this horrific theocracy that the young people of Ireland can't possibly imagine anymore, where girls are getting locked up in jail for a month for kissing fellas in the Black Rock. And um, I... Um, there were good things about it, though. I was like a sponge and I soaked up only the what I felt were the good things and rejected the bad and didn't bother thinking about them, do you know? Um, although I did have the Catholic guilt for ages, you know? But what I really took on board were certain things that really f were part of my foundation, almost physically even, you know? Um, and one of them was this thing of, of rejecting the material world, do you know? what was more important, the, the, the contract I signed as such on the day I made my confirmation when I agreed to allow the Holy Spirit to let, to use me, I felt I need to keep that contract before I keep any other. I signed up before I signed any in the music business. So my thing was if I can get from one side of the board to the other without breaking that contract, then I know I'm grand, you know. And I, I had soaked up this thing of rejecting the material world. You know, the devil takes Jesus to the top of the mountain and says, you can have all this if you fall down and worship me. And as I've said in the book, I had a flat in a house in L.A. The wall was a glass window again. You're looking down into the city. And it was a constant reminder to me of that thing of, you know, you can have all this if you fall down and worship me. But Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your fucking God. Like, Well, now you've mentioned uh, that amazing uh, place in and I was L.A. Sorry, I was young too. When you're yeah. young, you don't really think about money. You don't give a fuck. Yeah. It's not like that. That's not your priority. You know, yeah. it only becomes your priority when you get into your late middle age and you're thinking about your fucking pension, you know. <laughs>
somebody wrote an, ar- an article 20 years after the Pope incident about the Pope incident and said, you know, there's nothing which is true more dangerous than an artist who feels they've nothing to lose, you know. And they were in the music business. There was a huge censorship going on at the time, all through the 80s. There was this whole censorship on American movement. Mm. The two live crew put out the first dirty video, girls waving their arse in the camera, and one of the ladies was saying, we love you a long time. It was banned. Public Enemy were getting banned, but their records were going in at number one. Um, Bruce Springsteen allowed the two live crew to use the backing track, the actual backing track of Born in the USA, so they put out a song called Band in the USA. The music was under attack. Rap was real dangerous because it it showed that it, it allowed more people to express themselves. You didn't have to be a musician anymore to express yourself. Mm-hmm. Anybody could rap, you know. Um, the things they were saying were too truthful and the establishment was really fucking frightened. Yeah. There you have a great example of the establishment frightening music, you know. It was brilliant, like NWA were getting arrested at the gigs like the Blues Brothers if they played Fuck the Police. Police had come to the gig and warned them, don't, don't play it. They wouldn't do it till the encore, but they wouldn't even get through the first verse. <laughs> Fuck cops would come and get them, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was attacks on music and how they silenced rap and groomed and silenced that generation was they deliberately pushed artists like Vanilla Ice or MC Hammer, where you had the sound of the records, but not the words. So, again, they they blacklisted all of us as such, and then they blacklisted all the real fucking rappers. And now, often, with exceptions, obviously, the rap has become all about champagne or your girl on my dick or, you know, whatever the usual, you know, no, I'm going to shoot you or blah blah, you know. Mm. So yeah, it got we it got groomed in silence too, and it worked. I mean, where are the people that are writing songs that are causing riots? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and you going back to that thing you just said about nothing to lose. We should talk about SNL and the Pope picture because yeah, that was yeah. a. It's funny because I think about your your dad. I think it was at the Bob Dylan tribute after yeah. the, you throw yeah. up the picture of the Pope, where he said, "Well, Sinead, I think you better go back to college because you've just destroyed your career." Yeah. Um, and you see the SNL thing as quite the opposite, actually. Yeah, it freed like, you precisely. People say that it derailed my career, but it derailed what they wanted. Not what I wanted. They wanted to buy the house in Antigua. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't asked what I fucking wanted, you know. It almost it shouldn't have happened, nothing compared to you. It wasn't supposed to happen, nearly. Do you know what I mean? I don't belong in that world. I, I'm a square peg in a round hole. I was a protest singer. I was influenced by protest singers when I was young. People like Freddie White, do you know, obviously Bob Dylan, John Lennon. I mean, the 70s was pretty fucking incredible for you know, music that could change the world. That's why John Lennon is dead again. He was singing anti-war songs. Mm. It's not just Mark Chapman that shot fucking John Lennon. Nobody thinks that, you know. I just want to remind people about SNL because it was a huge thing. And like you say, it was a liberating thing, but other people wanted yeah, want to... Yeah, when they say it derailed my career, I say it re-railed it. I was on the wrong tracks. So it put me back to a position where I'm a born live performer. Mm. That's what I fucking do. Uh, it's like Stanislavski acting method of singing, do you know? So I had to make my living doing that. It was great. I wasn't going around doing any more just fucking mm. stupid photo sessions all the time and bloody bullshit, you know? And you write about where you got that photo and the fact that you'd carried it around. You said on the day yeah. your mother died, you took down the only photo from her bedroom wall, Pope John Paul. 
and you know the young people of Ireland I love you and you say what a load of claptrap nobody loved us not even God sure our, even our mothers and fathers couldn't stand us and you say your intention had always been to destroy your mother's photo of the Pope it represented lies and liars and abuse the type of people who kept things like that were devils like my mother I never knew when or where or how I would destroy it but destroy it I would and you brought it everywhere um, because well, that's nobody... a bit of an exaggeration. I didn't bring <laughs> you it. You wrote everywhere. that. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But I'm inclined to. I did let my mind wander because it's a memoir, so I did just let my mind wander and be me. What I did was I imagined writing the book that I was talking to a particular person. I'm sitting on a train having a conversation with this one particular person, and so I've written Who's a very that common... person? Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I imagined I was sitting on a train with Bob Dylan just talking, you know. So, uh, like, when you talk, you exaggerate things, you know, and I didn't want to limit any of that. So I didn't take it fucking everywhere. I went, that would be bonkers, you know, but I took it around a few times. I I, I was thinking about it a few times. But it's in your head. You knew you had it. You knew you were going to destroy it. You said, and just to to add to what you were saying. stupid Pope mobile. He's in the fucking Pope mobile. I go, fuck (laughs) off. Like, if, if you weren't such a cunt, you wouldn't be so afraid. Everyone was calling me crazy for not acting like a pop star, for not worshipping fame. And I understand I've torn up the things of those around me, but those aren't my dreams. No one ever asked me what my dreams were. They just got mad at me for not being who they wanted me to be. Mm. That's so powerful. Mm. And that's why you Well, that was the way it was for all musicians at that time. You know, like that could have been spoken by Ice Cube or, you know, KRS-One or, you know loads of the, lo- the rappers in particular you know so. how did you feel at the time about how Ireland saw you um, Sinead as an artist and did you feel misunderstood did you, or did you feel loved because of nothing compares to you how did you feel about your home country well I lived in England you know I was in England for 20 years so I wasn't really exposed to my home country or how they felt so it wasn't really something I thought about at mm. all you know I was aware all over the world that, that media and n- not misunderstood me they fucking understood me was the problem they wanted mm-hmm. so they had to discredit me the same as the rappers they had to make me look crazy they couldn't kill me they, don't, they can't shoot you anymore you know all they can do is try and either ban you or silence you in some way the fact that I was Irish I think helped I'm a gobby bitch do you know what I mean um, but yeah that's 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 really all I can so to going back to SNL and your career kind of being re-railed, as you say, not derailed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, it sort of set you free a bit. Yeah, but it go- made me, I was doing what I loved. Yeah. I spent time doing what I loved, which is performing live. And you were saying that um, nothing compares to you shouldn't have happened to you in a way because you're this punk yeah, singer, this protest exactly. singer. But it did anomaly. happen and it made you this super, super star. But let's talk about your LA house and that wall and you painting yeah. your wall purple, purple because yeah. this is mad. Yeah, because in the, uh, whatever, in the 80s or whatever, nobody in Ireland painted their wall a colour. <laughs> Everything was like nicotine yellow, do you know? <laughs> Literally. Uh, and there'd be popes all over the wall and Padre Pio and the whole fucking shit. And, and like everything was buttermilk, yeah. do you know? You, nobody painted anything a, a, a colour. That's why my house in Bray, everybody was look, interested in the photos because it's full of colour. You know, rainbow rugs and pink rooms and purple rooms and fucking... So, yeah, it was a huge thing. You know, everybody in America had, did their rooms up, so... It was huge. Me and my mates, we went and got the purple paint and we were like, oh my God. 
Yeah, I'm waiting for the girl. Uh, you painted it purple. You get a call yeah. on your phone. Tell yeah. us the story because it's well, one it's of the most... Well, it's not interesting because it's purple yeah, in the sense. Exactly. It was the, it's one of the best bits in the book, well, I think. I, I it's so well so. written. I hope it's, so, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. an amazing piece from Rolling Stone magazine or something like that. Tell us about Prince ringing you up. Well, I'm, we're, we're, we've to. just finished the purple bedroom being painted and get all excited about it. This was the time, at the same time, there was a movement, you might remember, this is completely a tangent I'm going on now. Uh, do you remember there was a movement to get women to look at their vaginas in the mirror? <laughs> With a mirror, yeah. yeah. <laughs> People had never looked at their fucking vaginas yeah. before, ever, do you know? So it was around the same time, so I somehow think that we were painting the room and looking at our vaginas. <laughs> And um, that was all done, and like then I get a phone call, and somebody says, you know, that's Shinead O'Connor, you know. And I say, yeah, and he says he's Prince, and he wants me to come over. And me and the girls are all excited because we think, oh, maybe we'll fall in love, and, you know, it'll be really exciting meeting him, and he'd be really happy about the song and all this shit, you know. And when I get there, I find he's a fucking monster. He's quite like my mother, very switchy. So very charmingly, he asked me, do I want a drink? And he then switches, like my mother used to turn around real violent and slam the glass down on the table, get it yourself, you know. And from then I knew I'm in trouble. And then, you know, I don't want to give away the story because it actually is, I think, the best chapter in the book. <laughs> and uh, it was really uh, a frightening experience. In fact, when I, I, I didn't want to read the audio book because I f imagined some of the childhood stuff, what might be upsetting or, you know, it could be didn't want to be in that place. Turned out when I read it, none of, none of that stuff actually upset me in any way. But what did, the only chapter that I had to actually take two days off and go to bed was the Prince chapter because I hadn't at the time engaged. I was so busy surviving it that I wasn't, hadn't emotionally engaged in how absolutely fucking terrifying the whole night was, you know. So, um, yeah, when I read it, I really was like, oh, my God, that was a really fucking frightening situation you know but he's someone who's beloved as well isn't he like, yeah yeah it's, but you you saw mm. the side to him that obviously other people saw too yeah that were in his orbit women in particular there were other women that he put in hospital you know with broken ribs and you name it you know mm. so i i think the fact again that i was irish is what got me out of that i was gobby do you know what I mean? And I ran and I bashed the door and I did this, that and the other and I, I insulted him back and do you know what I mean? And I also had had a lot of practice, obviously, growing up in running away. I'm really brilliant at running away. I know what to do. The first thing you need to do is change your top because they're looking for someone in a blue top, you know. So anyway, I was real good at running away and I'm lucky that I was because, you know, there's a very funny scene in it where he, you know, I'm hiding behind a tree so that I can get out down the mountain, you know, out of his garden. He's going down the driveway this way and we end up meeting on the motorway. It's about five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. We're literally running around the car, him with the pillow with something in it trying to bother me and me spitting at him. And then I run into a house and ring the doorbell and he, he fucks off. Yeah. And I think you call him Fluffy Cuffs or Fluffy something. Fluffy Cuffs, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yes, I have to tell everyone they have to buy the book and read it because it is an amazing, amazing um, chapter. So after you tore up the Pope photo and you got a bit of freedom to be exactly who you were and you were a yeah. bit of a pariah then, weren't you? Because oh, yeah. America was so mm. pissed off with you. And I mean, I still am. I don't get my records played in America at all. I'm blacklisted from any of the shows, you know except I'm doing Carson Daly now this week, but I was completely blacklisted. My records were just removed, do you know what I mean? And 
you know. Mm. But in a way, you know, I felt better again. I, like it was fairer on the audience. They pay a lot of their week's wages for a ticket to a gig, you know. They pay 20 quid for a CD that cost the record company 50 cents to make. Do you yeah. know what I mean? The audience are getting ripped off and so is the artist. So the only direct relationship with the audience means, you know, everybody's getting what they pay for, do you know? Mm. I don't know if that's a good way to articulate what I mean, but... So tell me about then the next stage of your um, career and your life, because um, by that stage you have two children or... At that point, I'm just at the thinking. point of the Pope business. Yeah, no, you still no, only I had Jake. I, I believe I still only had Jake at that okay. point. Okay, yeah. but then did it free you up musically, artistically? Do you it remember was, that? Sorry, I definitely only had Jake. Because wasn't born until ninety six. Yeah. So. Yes, it did. Well, I was always free musically. Actually, no, didn't didn't free me up musically. I was always free. But what it did was, it meant that I was spending less time being a pop star, i.e., being styled and photographed and you know, going to do promo and, you know, mm. all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I was spending more time gigging, you know, and that's where the fun is, you know, and that's where you get to be the fire you really are, is live. All artists are much better live than they are in the studio, mm. you know. And then when I'm making albums or writing songs, I'm really thinking about how's the gig going to be, you know. So when I'm fixing up a record or mixing up a record, I'm thinking of, How's the gig going to be? And what I learned over the years, the audience want two things. They want to be able to sing along. That's what they're paying for. <laughs> and, they want, yeah. and they want distortion. Right. Distorted guitars. <laughs> we do yeah. like to sing along yeah. with you. It's true. That's the only reason I people sang go along to along with you Street. Like, yeah. thank you for hearing me. It's just such yeah. a... We yeah. all just want to... Yeah, well, that's the point in every gig when the men start crying. And half, you know you've done a good job. Through, yeah. Halfway through, thank you for hearing me off and hear them from the back of the room roaring. And it's not sad crying because that song is quite religious. It's a bit of a mantra, but it's really sweet. And my drummers are always telling me I sing with my eyes closed. So I'm not looking at the audience because I'm mortified. But they be watching them and they always say, yeah, halfway through, thank you for hearing me. The men are all streaming, you know. And you say in the book that usually men are crying because you're being a pain in the hole to them. Yeah, but the <laughs> only time I made them cry for a good reason. I love it. I just want to read you one line about family that you write, which you say, family is a painful stabbing word, cuts the heart into pieces and all the more because it's too late to go back and do anything differently. That yeah. really got to me and I think a yeah. lot of people relate to that because, yeah, yeah. you know, this idea of happy families is, yeah, is yeah. one that the Irish have kind of tried to... Absolutely. You know, we've shoved everything under the carpet, including... Yeah, well, in those times especially, I mean, there was no divorce, um, you know, there was no nappies, there was no fucking, you know all kind of things. There was no I don't even think there was dishwashers, you know, and the women were cooking the nappies in pots on the cooker. The man was never you never saw a man pushing a pram until probably the early nineties, you know. So it was weird and if you couldn't break up a marriage. The men were out all day working. They weren't really engaging with the children, you know, and it was just such a weird fucking country and the women weren't allowed to work at all, so they were miserable. They were all on Valium. They go to the doctor with every fucking mother on earth was on Valium in Ireland, or rather. And it was just fucking mania, really. But did know. your fame and your success and going around talking your truth, did that had bad effects on your relations in your family? Did it have bad yeah, effects? Yeah, did you, did it have negative effects? Did you, did you look at that and think, you know, just speaking your truth yeah. and telling yeah. what had happened to you? I think it was that. difficult for them, but I, I don't have regrets about being myself. But I now, of course, would be much more careful about only uh, literally only talking about my experience and being very careful that I don't 
discuss anyone else's experience, which I don't think I really did in the past, but understandably it's not easy and even it'll be difficult at the moment uh, for... for even it's difficult for me, like I did, told you I did this article with The Guardian, they were fucking digging in about the childhood stuff, and for three days I was in so much pain that I hadn't felt since I was a kid, and nightmares and everything. Of course, that's why it bothered the family, because they don't want to fucking think about this shit, and that's completely understandable. But at the same time, I can't... I couldn't be honest about what my songs were about, you know? I, I don't have the ability to formulate a lie, or, or do you know what I mean? And also what I... I came in an age where, as you remember, people who were, like, raped or abused, when they were interviewed, they'd always be in shadow. So mm. I was the first person in the country talking about this stuff without being in shadow. I wasn't ashamed of it. There's nothing to be ashamed of, you know. But it's a real hot potato for everybody else. They don't want to wake the sleeping dogs, you know. Mm. And, uh, and, even and you- I understand that. I totally understand that. So they were, they were upset, but, like, I didn't have the DNA that would have allowed me to change my story do you know because I when I was a kid in that house and I've been saying to my son Shane lately that I feel the only reason God gave me a career was so that I could write this book and the reason is when I was a child in that house I said to myself I'm going to make sure the whole world knows what happened to us because otherwise what happened was for nothing and we might have died in this house and nobody would ever have known that the O'Connor children were the children of Lear you know I was determined, I was telling that story, to go down and down history, the, the O'Connor, poor O'Connor children were the children of Lear, you know. You're very loving about your family in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about Joe O'Connor, your brother, yeah. as a hero. Because yeah. he was the one who sort of, you played his records when he yeah. was gone to school and yeah. such an influence there. Emery, yeah. I've, I've read that beautiful line. You have a gorgeous letter to your daddy yeah. in the book as well, which yeah. I just love because you're basically yeah. reassuring him. I was mad all along. So yeah, it's kind of exactly, what you say. I was yeah. bonkers from the beginning. Yeah, It's not exactly. your fault. Yeah. Was that important for you to put that in? Yeah, well, it was a letter that I actually did write him one night. <laughs> Because, God help him, you know, any man or woman in his situation, you can't imagine the heartbreak they've carried, you know, to think that the person you married did those things to your children, uh, to carry that heartache. As you're a mother, I think, yourself. You know the way your child, if your child is heartbroken, you feel their heartbreak as well as yours. So my father, of course, as I say in the intro, is, is the human being that I've met that has carried the most pain of anyone I ever met but carried it fucking heroically, you know. And um, he often will ask you, he still sometimes mistakenly feel a bit guilty. He'll often say, you know, is it because I left you with your mother or is it because of whatever? So I often reassure him, of course it's not, you know. So it's an actual letter that I did really write him, but it just struck me that it would be a nice, you know, ending to the book at the same time, because the book is also dedicated to my father and, one of the main things I wanted out of the book was for for it to be known that my father is a king of a man, you know. Mm. You also write oh, I mean, very... I, my father was a massive influence on me in terms of the divorce action group. He's still on YouTube and you could watch him. He'd be on the news. I'd be like 14 or 15. He'd be on the 6 o'clock news giving the church fucking hell. So when he said to me after the Pope thing, oh, please stop doing this, don't talk about it. I'm like, Dad, you are on the fucking telly. It's your fault. Because you are on there telling the church they could fucking burn, yeah. you know. You also write brilliantly about motherhood, I think, because, you know, about that trying, as we, anyone who is a parent feels, that desperate to be the best mother, to do the best thing, and then 
Inevitably failing, failing yeah. you know. And you're very, um, you're hard on yourself in the book, I think. I know, it's more accurate. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, I suppose, okay, so that's wrong, but you're yeah, very, yeah. okay, you're truthful about your failings as, yeah, as, yeah. as a parent. Yeah, yeah. And that's because you can't, as you say, you don't have the DNA to, to not be. But you're also, yeah. there's a chapter where you describe each of your children and I would yeah. urge again everyone to read the book because, oh, I mean, it's it's a gorgeous love letter to your four yeah, amazing yeah. kids. Good. That's just so lovely to read as well. And um, you say in the book that it's, uh, that all your music, if you look at your body of work so far, each album is a it's story a of healing yeah. and it's a yeah. diary. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a really lovely line where, if, you know, if you, What's the point of um, going on a healing journey if you don't get healed? Yeah. And do you feel lately, we haven't talked about your radical hysterectomy, we will yeah, talk about yeah. that as well, but where are you now with your healing journey? Well, what, I, was, uh, I was talking to somebody about this the other night. What happened was in Ireland, we were terribly wounded people for 900 fucking years or however long we're going on. The landscape remembers, the psychology remembers. It is scientific fact, and the American Army act on this too, that if you annihilate more than 10% of a population, you psychologically damage them for life, irreparably, right? That's the belief. We actually suffered loss in the famine, for example, that was way beyond 10% of the population. Trauma that we suffered is carried in the voices of the singers of the country, you know? The whole way that Irish people sing is with this longing, you know? And the first artist to me that came along that shone a path, a light on the fact that there was a healing path and shone a light on this path was Van Morrison, right? He was quite ahead of his time and he, he would be my idol, really, you know, as a as a, per, a vocalist, what he's doing with his voice. It's never about the words, it's healing, you know. He was the first person to stand up and express the, the blood of Ireland, you know, even if he was singing the ABC, you know, or the phone book. He shone a light in his whole career, really, was about investigating different areas of healing, different religions, different things, a lot of his songs about healing and all. He had some terribly unfortunate circumstances, obviously, in his life, and so he mm. didn't necessarily get to the final destination. But why he was terribly important was he showed us that there was a path, you know? So I feel like, you know, he showed that music as a priesthood, you know? And so did the Rastafari people, and I've feel that I've had music as a priesthood as well. I had a dream one time that I pressed a button on a lift in a hotel. Actually, no, it was after an awards show in some building, a music awards show. The lift opens and in there is Geldof and Van and I can't remember who else, but a bunch of famous rock stars. And behind them, you could see as if there was no back to the lift, it was raining. And they say, here, do you want to come in? And I said, no, I'm going to get out on the sunny floor you know, and let the door close and press the button. So, And what I'm saying there is, you know, Van showed the path. He didn't necessarily get to the very end of it, but the fact that he showed it allowed me to, you know, and to diarise with music and everything. And, yeah, if not for Van, I wouldn't have got to the end of that path. Do you know? And it, you said diarise because I was going to mention your man Nigel Grange saying to you when the, I do not want what I have not got um, mm. came out. He said, "Who's going to want to listen to yeah. this? These ramblings of the diary. It'd yeah. be like Terence Trent Darby's second album yeah. shoved in a in a basement somewhere." Yeah, he said it, he <laughs> the didn't want to it because it was like reading someone's diary. But Which sure, is that's why what we fucking, loved that's it. That's what music is. Sure, <laughs> listen to Bob Dylan. Every record is like a diary. No, all music is like a diary. There's not a song on earth that isn't like a diary. Do you know, even the, I'm thinking of the guys like you know. 
you know, like the impressions and those kind of vocal bands that were around all singing love songs, you know, mm. which that's the shit you write in your diary, you know, just my imagination, you know, all those type of songs. Every song you can think of is like a diary, you know. I remember going on, um, this has reminded me of going on um, an English TV show. At, I don't know if it was Jules Holland or The White Room. The producer didn't want me to perform Famine my song Famine he says to me and there's a whole lot of people standing up behind him and he, he says to me um, this is a music show it's not a political platform and I said to him well would you like to tell that to Bob Dylan <laughs> and all the assistants behind him started laughing and he was got because you know you can't fucking tell music what it can say and do you know that's tell what's us, so great about it tell us about because you had really and honestly that whole Dr. Phil section of the book um, and you getting sick and mm. going to America is very hard to, to read I'm sure it was hard right. to write and to no break, it kind of wasn't actually but it did really. flow out of you yeah, yeah I didn't find any of it painful to write okay that's none good none of it at all yeah cause not at all and then even when I read the audiobook I said the only thing that fucked me up was the Prince chapter mm. yeah but tell me about the radical hysterectomy and that whole um chapter of your life which was very heavy mm, for yeah. you in so many ways mm. so well I'll tell you as much as I can um, I one of my children became very unwell while I was on tour in early in March 2015 I tried to get home my booking agent wouldn't give me my passport right mm. so I had to stay I got home the child wasn't well at all I was very frightened for him and for me I was cancelling gigs and I was having to, my my people had not insured the tour correctly. They had lied to the fucking brokers about pre-existing conditions, etc. So I was paying over like three underground to cover the cost of tours and also I could see the whole house collapsing, you know. And I, you cannot get help for children under the age of 14 in this country with, with certain situations. In, in in the midst of that, I had been bleeding like a mad one for, for years. I, I um, just, I'd be sitting on the toilet hemorrhaging between shows. I'd be crying and bleeding basically in the toilet. I couldn't, I could barely lift my arms. I'd be going to the Dublin airport on tour. I wanted to crawl across the floor. And I had all the procedures. You can have an ablation, you know, where they burn the inside mm-hmm. the bloody womb or whatever. It didn't work. And then they figured that I had chronic endometriosis, which they had missed for three years. So it happens a lot with yeah. women, doesn't it? Like we've had it, talked about it on the show before. Mm. So what people don't understand, and I didn't understand this, and it fucking gave me the creeps. That what happens with endometriosis is a bit like Alien in the Alien movie. It starts to the lining of your womb leaks out and starts to form other wombs on your organs, and of course it can kill you. Um, but all of them are bleeding is the thing. So um, they do. They go through these steps, you know, they give you an ablation or whatever and see if that works, but it didn't work. Um, so I was recommended to have a hysterectomy. The uh, the guy who did it said to me, oh, I may as well just take your ovaries out. There was nothing wrong with my ovaries. There was a fear I was going to die if I didn't have the surgery. It was fuck all wrong with my ovaries. He just said he may as well take them out. My GP thinks I should sue the fucker. So they take out the ovaries, that's when you lose your shit. Like if you were born, if you were raised by Joseph and Mary, like in the little house in the fucking prairie, you get suicidal and mental and, you know. So I leave the hospital with a bottle of paracetamol. Nobody mentions hormone therapy. Nobody mentions what I'm about to go through, surgical menopause, which is like menopause times a thousand. In America, they sit your family down and they tell them, look, she's going to turn into a she-devil now, don't be too worried, you know, we'll put her on hormone, she'll be grand. Um, 
they didn't do any of that here. Also, I was terribly traumatised by the hysterectomy because, as I've written in the book, my mother had a habit of trying to burst my womb. The whole thing was to destroy my womb. So when I had the surgery, it was terribly triggering. In America, what they do too is they ask you, have you any issues of sexual abuse? And that way they know that you're going to be triggered by the surgery and you're going to need extra support. None of that here. I literally left Hollis Street with a bottle of paracetamol and a follow-up appointment, which I was too frightened to go to. I didn't even discover I had no cervix for about another year, you know. I was so frightened, you know. Uh, I still haven't been to the fucking checkup. Like, well, sorry, and I had a checkup in a treatment centre I went to, and I, I was, I didn't get to grieve the loss of my reproductive system till about a year later, because chaos kicked off because I had lost my fucking mind, you know. And there, everybody in the family had their own shit going on as well, and somebody at that time. I can't legally talk about it much, but somebody at that time did something absolutely horrific to one of my children, not sexual abuse or anything like that, but just fucked up my kid. And that really fucked me up as well. And I was furious, angry, angry, angry that Mama Bear was out in the fucking cave and didn't get back in for six years, you know. Right. Um, so I was like a she-devil and everybody was terrified of me. Yeah. And then, was that so we looked saw that Facebook post and that was the, I went to America. What happened was nobody wanted anything to do with me because I was too frightening, and so um, I was on my own. And the only thing I could think of doing was to go to America, where I had a friend, and I slept in his house for like two nights, and then he put me up in a house of some friends of his. Turned out that the guy called Matt Walker, he was Morrissey's drummer. And his wife, Charlotte, who were fucking amazing, they would bring me to the hospital and the therapy and the whole fucking thing. So that I was there for about two years. It was only the tail end of that that Dr. Phil slimes on board. So what happens is um, I've got an apartment, but I'm so fucking depressed and suicidal, I can't stay in it for more than 24 hours just because I've lost my whole family. Nobody wants anything to do with me. Yeah, you're right. totally isolated. You're on your own. No one yeah, wants to. Yeah, no one wants to know me because I'm a monster, you know. And they don't know what the fuck to make of it, you know, and neither do I. And nobody, even Pat, nobody to this day said hormone replacement. Nobody mentioned it. Of course, I didn't think of it either. So anyway, I was in, I had an apartment in New Jersey, couldn't stay in it for more than a day, kept going to hospital. In fact, the nurses used to be on the phone telling them, I you never guess who's here again, <laughs> you know. So I'm sitting in this particular hospital in a place called Englewood in New Jersey, and uh, I get told that Dr. Phil is trying to get hold. Oh, no, what happened is I was staying in a motel for a while. I like motels because you smoke in them. I didn't want to be in the apartment for some reason. And But I got a kidney stone, which is the worst motherfucking pain on earth. And I made this fucking tragic video on Facebook, which, I, again, I'm not embarrassed about. I don't do shame. I'm a singer. Um, <laughs> and I was hoping that somebody in the family might... I had been writing to people to say, here, would you come and get me or whatever. They were all too terrified. I thought if they, might, if they actually saw the pain I was in, that might be different, you know. Um, and then what happened was, fucking, I'm in the hospital and I get told that Dr. Phil is looking for me and how he found me is by sending one of his assistants to hunt on my Facebook page to find a contact. They get me through my immigration lawyer, Michael Wilds, whose father was the dude who did the whole John Lennon visa thing, you know. There's a picture of him on my Facebook page, so they tracked me down via him. And I, as I'm explaining in the book, I'm in the fucking hospital in America, you can't smoke. I've been locked up for a week or so with no cigarettes and I'm dying to get out. So I just say, fuck it, sign I don't even care. I don't even, didn't even read it, wasn't fit to, you know. 
And then he, of course, goes on Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy says to him, how did you and Sinead hook up? He says, fucking, she called me, mm. the lying fuck. He knows that. He knew that if he told the truth, Jimmy Kimmel's next... Well, Jimmy Kimmel's next question would have been, don't you think you're exploiting somebody really vulnerable, you know? So, yeah, and then the saga goes on. It's all in the book. It's all basically. in the book and yeah. people can read it. But, it, I mean, it is it is just a, a big saga. And you get home eventually. Yeah. And you're, and you're into Pats then and you get some good care. Yeah, I, I landed back from America. I stayed in Pats for eight months. Yeah. And that was a good yeah. bit of healing. Lots of times that, that I've been there. I was there for fucking months, like six months and that, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, we haven't talked about spirituality much, but I I really love yeah. through the book the kind of how that thread yeah. is there from the very oh, beginning, yeah. and it ends with you as you're sitting here in your lovely blue hijab, which you've been wearing for the right. last couple of years, and yeah. it's like you have literally tried every yeah. sort of spiritual thing in the yeah. world, and and Islam is kind of where you've landed, landed, yeah, yeah. almost like I think you say it's not um. Converting is reverting. Reverting, yeah. Well, in that way, I'm also a bit similar to Van. Van is somebody who explored every religion, including Satanism. You know, he was a real searcher, you know, for the truth kind of thing. So in that way, I'm a bit like him. But what it was, was from the time I was about seven, I was interested in theology because the miserable fucking priests at the time, they never said anything about the Old Testament. They would drum the gospel into you. And I was like, why are they not telling us about, you know? And I'm looking at my people, my granny and that, and they're afraid to have a kiss, and they're a bit miserable and blue, everybody's miserable, and I want to read this book that has oppressed my people, you know? And then I discover that, of course, why they're not talking about the Old Testament is because in the books of the prophets, God speaks, and God doesn't like religion at <laughs> all. In fact, he loathes it, you know? And uh, so the whole story is God can't stand, God makes people, people make religion, God is broken hearted and keeps sending prophets and then Jesus, no, none of it fucking works. And uh, then Jesus is to come back again and fuck everybody up and end religion. That's what the book of Revelation is about, it's Jesus' book of prophecy. And the most important words that Jesus ever spoke was when he's asked, is he here to uh, disrespect religion? He says, no, actually, I'm here to fulfill all the books of the prophets and not until every jot and tittle of the books of the prophets has been fulfilled will religion pass away. The most important word in that sentence is until, because what he's saying is religion will pass away. And the book of Revelation is the book of Jesus' prophecy in which he ends religion and it's quoted as saying God lives on earth with the human race. You know, But then I lived in London surrounded by people of all different religions. So I got really interested in Hinduism, which I love, a Hindu shit yeah, all over my house. And I studied lots of different theologies. And I left Islam until last. I had Qurans and that. I'd met lovely people in London or whatever, but I was racist about it myself. I, I believed the bullshit that we're all getting fed, that, you know, that it says in the Quran about women should be treated like shit and people should be shot and 72 virgins. 
none of that is in there. It's completely a lie. Um, so I left it to last, and then I... The Quran is a very interesting document. It's not uh, to be read, it's to be listened to. It's a song. Jesus, in fact, predicted Muhammad when he stated, and it's also stated in one of the books of the prophets, there'll be a prophet who comes who will say, I cannot read. So how the Quran comes about is God... It takes 21 years, God sings verses to Angel Gabriel, who sings them to Muhammad, <laughs> who can't read or write. The first thing that happens to Muhammad is Gabriel appears to him and says, read, and and uh, squeezes him in his arms. And Muhammad says, I can't fucking read. And the angel keeps saying, read. And it's established then between the two of them that the fucker can't read. And he must have had the most beautiful voice on earth because God chose him. So 21 years it takes for God sing it to Gabriel, Gabriel sing it to Muhammad. As it's written, Muhammad goes and sings it to the people. So you're not meant to read the Quran. It's a song, okay. you know. So I started listening to it and reading. You can listen to it on YouTube with Arabic and then they tell you what the verse means. Chapter 2 alone, if you read, if you listen to just chapter 2, you would know the whole gist of the Quran. And what blew my fucking mind is very opposite to Catholicism. There's redemption in it. You know, if you do bad shit, you can make up for it by doing good shit, you know. But it's very interesting for a theologian. It states at the beginning it's raison d'etre or whatever. The God, God uh, says that the Quran exists to confirm all previous scripture. Mm. But to complain about the ways in which the scriptures have been lied about or okay. covered up. And then the next thing he says it exists for, within six paragraphs he's saying this, that he's angry about the practice of female babies being buried alive. All right? Then there's a, chapter one is just a little prayer, but chapter two is full of all this stuff. And he points out to you the ways in which the lies were told about scripture and what the truths are. And then it's nothing but the whole fucking book nearly is full of instructions on how to fuck to treat women and how not to fucking treat women, you know. Mm. And it's all the God character pissed off that the women are being treated like shit. And of course, everyone believes that Islam is a religion that treats women like yeah. shit, you know. So it's very, it's really interesting. We have all the same characters that are in the gospel, you know, mm. but different, different, you hear different information about them that you, and for us, Jesus is a prophet, you know. We don't believe that Jesus died on the cross and all that. And we haven't mentioned, of course, you becoming a priest and all of that mm. was part of that whole journey too, which mm. people will remember. Well, it was the rebellion of it as well. It was quite a Rastafari mm. thing to do, you know. Yeah. Because the church were saying we couldn't be priests. And I was like, why are we taking no for an answer? Like, what the fuck? Why are we waiting for them to say You're we can? just can't? ahead of your time completely. Well, no, there was, actually I wasn't. I was the second Irish woman to be ordained. Previous to that, there was about 350 American women. There's tons of American women. Well, you know? I suppose it was just more, more visible. But um, I want to go through some of the funny things in the book before we finish yeah, it. Because cool. it's very funny and it's laughs. So I'm going to uh, read out a couple of them. Like you used to be a kissogram, mm. which some people don't know. And there's mm. an amazing picture of you in the book. I know, I said they should put that on the cover. We yeah, just saw no, it a lot more. No, the cover is beautiful. You <laughs> you used to work in the Badass Cafe mm. and you had the T-shirt on, nice pizza ass. Yeah, yeah. Just, when we think about it now, they yeah, sexualize their appalling. wages. Yeah, it's appalling. Yeah, um, it's <laughs> This is the best, the funniest bit. You know the way your brother Joe plays guitar, oh, yeah, and Eamon yeah, plays yeah. harp, and you obviously sing, and you were going to And have... my little brother plays drums. They were all trained right. at the Royal Irish exactly. Academy. So you wanted to, you, to have a band and call it Fuck the Chords. No, I wanted to call the album Fuck the, <laughs> the Chords. Album I Fuck wanted to just make one album okay. and call it Fuck the Chords. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Which is nothing personal to the chorus, obviously. Oh, no, they're, no, they're but lovely, it's just but like, just you just like, weren't the chorus. Fuck like. the chorus, here's the fucking O'Connors, you know. It'd be a bit like the Sex Pistols record, you know. What was it called? 
Never mind the bollocks. Never mind the bollocks. Yeah, exactly. Here's the O'Connors. Yeah. Um, and there just there's loads of laughs in it. It's it's an incredible, incredible book. It's so beautifully written. Joe O'Connor is not the only writer in your family. And well, I my sister is a great writer. And Emer, of course, Emer's an art historian as well. And it's incredible. Yeah. You're in a wonderful family of talented people and your children the way you write about them too they obviously have all that yeah, yeah. talent in them they have fantastic vocabularies my children like we're definitely a family of words and we're artistic family I guess in the same way the Yates family was do you know yeah and Yates was um, obviously you loved that school and was really yeah. inspired your first kind of songwriting and, and yeah I loved Yates although he was a creepy bastard wasn't he Let's face it. He was. I mean, he asked Maud God to marry him a thousand times, and then he asked her daughter, yeah. and then he realised why she didn't, why Maud God didn't want, Maud God didn't want to fucking marry she him. She had taste. I liked the Irish short stories. I'm always struck by one that was called Vanity, and it was about an old man whose only dream in life was to have his death notice in the Irish Times, and uh, that's all he cared about in life. And it's kind of narrated by his son. I can't remember who wrote it, but that had a huge effect on me as well about vanity. Be careful of vanity, you know. You also talk very funnily about um, being on tour and shagging all around you. Yeah. And yeah. you say, yeah, it's not a surprise that touring rhymes with whoring. Yeah. Totally. The, the, the tour bus will be rocking yeah. from side to side. Because there's loads yeah. of great sex in the book as well. Yeah. And you don't hold back on that. Actually, <laughs> I didn't realise this, but you had this, uh, I knew you had this relationship with Peter Gabriel. And yeah. you wrote Thank You For Hearing Me as a breakup song. Yeah. Because he was treating you like weekend pussy. Weekend pussy, yeah. And you yeah. didn't like that. No. Nobody yeah. does, unless you're... Well, I liked, I liked Weekend Pussy when I ever knew I was being Weekend Pussy. I didn't do the slutty college years till I was 49. And then, do you remember, I was all on the internet getting a boyfriend. I was oh, writing dude. articles in the Sunday Independent that were just scandalous. It was great. And they were funny. Was and there was so summer funny. scandal. I never forget it. I tried to get my brother to go on a date with you. You should yeah. have him. You, you saw a picture of him with the guitar and you were afraid he was just going to want to sing all the time. I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So I did the slutty years there. I never really did them when I was young. We, we would strictly sleep with the crew. And we would strictly dump them the second we got home. Yeah. And there was this saying, on tour doesn't count. So anybody who was in a relationship, if they've had it off with someone else on tour, it was like, look, fuck it, on tour doesn't count. You, you say another funny thing, Sinead, where you say there's going to be people looking for their name in this book and they're not going to fucking find it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. I know, because there's loads of men that people would know that you're kind of, were with or people you were oh, married well, to. Well, even. I, I never wanted to write about, I'm not referring to them. Oh, no, to, I'm, I'm talking about It's more people ones. like Mary Coughlin, you know. Um, she came up to me one day it's true as God you can use this or not I don't care but she fucking came up to me one day years ago she said don't you write about me in that memorandum what the fuck would I write about you for you know so she's not in it people like that you know. Mary's listening she doesn't get a mention yeah, and like, I also love um, the way you speak about Roisin's silence that she has <coughs> when she doesn't like a bigot when she faces a bigot she walks up and goes away yeah. and she doesn't say anything and yeah. you say you'd love a bit more of her silence. <laughs> yeah, it's the same as my sister. But then I've accepted now the way I am. I accept that I'm a gangster. In fact, I got myself a doormat the other day, two doormats. One I got, it says, come back with a warrant. That's going to be outside. But inside it says, gangster's paradise. So <laughs> I accept I'm a gangster. You know what I mean? Sinead, I'm really grateful that you invited me into your gangster's paradise. This is like one of the pleasures and privileges of my uh, podcasting career to be no, here with you. I want you. to read this quote you said about your children because I think everyone would aspire to this and anyone who has kids will relate to it or anyone who even has nieces, nephews, anyone with children in their lives. If I have no other purpose in this life other than to put these four children on this earth, well, that's enough for me to feel I did something useful in this world. I'm not just saying that because they're my children. 
They are absolutely unusual, intelligent, loving, compassionate, spiritually advanced, funny, worthwhile, hardworking human beings. And I couldn't be prouder. What a beautiful thing. Yeah. They're amazing. And what joy you have yeah. from them. Yeah. And what you've given to them too. I hope so. I've definitely given them self-esteem, you know. Not red hair though. Do yeah. one of them have red hair, do they? Um, no, no, actually. No. And one of them's a, well, I heard Roisin sing an electric picnic. She's a beautiful singer. She is. But she's your youngest is, is the one yeah. that you think is going to keep you in millions uh, in your old age. Well, I don't think he'll keep me in millions at all, though. He won't give a penny of it to me. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the one that goes into a music career because he's really talented, you know, But he and he's similar to myself. He's terribly embarrassed by it. You know, he hates me even talking about it. He'll kill me for talking about it. Like he went on stage at school, he did something and his friends treated him differently because they were like, whoa, who the fuck was that? You know, and he didn't like that. And I, I understand that it is because you do lose your life. You lose your life. You don't you will never have a normal life if you are phenomenal at music, you know, if you go for it. So I really was relieved that Roshan didn't go into the music business because I was more worried about my daughter going in than my sons because I knew they'd project onto her all the shit they did to me, the crazy making. They'd be thinking, is everything out of her mouth fucking crazy and humiliating her and for being my daughter, you know. So I was relieved that she didn't go into it. But I don't know if Yashua will because he doesn't like at all this thing of people treating him differently, you know. Shane, my son, is very interested in being a rapper and he's a genius with words. Like when he was eight years of age, they, 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 I was told to bring him to the Centre for Talented Youth of Ireland and they established that his intellect was around the age of 18, but in particular his vocabulary. Right. He's a master of words. Like when his little brother would annoy him, Shane would be about five, <laughs> he'd come in and he'd say, I did such and such for Yeshua, and how does he repay me? <laughs> you know, real Shakespearean, you know? Well, his mother is a master yeah. with words as well, and Sinead O'Connor, that book is a work of art, well, like all, you. everything you've ever done. And thank you. Thank you for coming on the Women's Podcast. No, thank you for having us. me. I'm really pleased you liked it. And book, I wish so. you all the best with all the wonderful things that are going to happen in your future and, and your you. art. And I hope you're, you're writing now, are you? And you're going to be given, going to have another yeah, album. Yeah, I've got an album coming out in September, but what I'm hoping from the book, as I told you earlier, is I'd love to get some writing jobs, you know? I think, we, I, think I know a few people. Like, you know? <laughs> I want to have a column. Okay, yeah. you heard it here yeah. on the Women's Podcast. Sinead O'Connor wants yeah. a column. I think it should be with the Irish Times, given that's where I did my work experience. You started off all yeah. those years ago in the Irish Times. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know if they're the type of people who want to publish the type of sense of humour I might have about things. You do have yeah. quite a toilet humour, it has yeah, to be said. Yeah, well, that's musicians, we're scumbags. <laughs> yeah. so. Thank you so much, Sinead. Cool, thank you. That was Sinead O'Connor there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for hearing her and thank you, Sinead, for writing this beautiful book. It's called Rememberings and it's available from the 1st of June and I know you're going to love it just as much as I did. That's it for now. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>